Hello, and welcome to another episode of In Conversation. I'm Pat King, a staff writer at Years to Feed. Today's guest is one of my true heroes, Tom Sharpling. Sharpling joined us to talk about his equally hilarious and harrowing new memoir, It Never Ends, a memoir with nice memories, out this week via Abrams Press. Sharpling is known to most as the host of the long-running and groundbreaking call-in radio show, The Best Show, which has produced countless moments of comedic greatness with his comedy partner, John Worcester, who also plays drums in Superchunk, The Mountain Goats, and for Bob Mould. Over the years, Sharpling has left his mark on comedy as a prolific TV writer, with his work on shows like Monk, Difficult People, Divorce, What We Do in the Shadows, and most recently, Kevin Can F Himself, which will be airing this summer. For the younger audience, his voice may be recognizable from his work as Greg Universe on the Cartoon Network animated series Steven Universe. It Never Ends is a profound and revealing exploration into Sharpling's history with mental illness and into the trauma it has cost him over the years. While moments may be shocking and heartbreaking for longtime fans, Sharpling is able to strike a balance between dark moments in his life and often hilarious stories of triumph that will find you cheering as you wipe tears away from your eyes. In our conversation, I did my best to not press him on some of the more difficult moments that he reveals in the book. Both to not spoil the surprises of the book, and also, it's just not in my nature to have someone relive these hard moments when it's ultimately their story to tell. Frankly, it's just a good excuse for you to buy this incredible memoir. You can order It Never Ends at TomWroteABook.com or buy it wherever books are sold. And make sure to check out The Best Show live every Tuesday night at thebestshow.net, which they make available as a podcast after it airs. Also, make sure to check out his hilarious podcast, Double Threat, which he hosts with Julie Klausner every Monday. One small correction before we get into it. The memoir I mentioned at some point in this podcast that Tom saw at a bookstore was by Kelsey Grammer and not Garrison Keillor. A similar bozo, but I feel as though I should give credit where credit is due. Without further ado, here's my chat with Tom Sharpling on In Conversation. Hey, Tom. Hey. How's it going? Hey, good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> well, well, thanks. Thanks What's so up? much for not too much, not too much. Um, I'm so thrilled that that you are joining me on this. The, uh, you're one of my you're one of my heroes. So it's it's really blowing me away to get to see you and talk to well, you. Well, it's my pleasure. And let's see what we can do about this hero thing. How <laughs> I can put an end to that in under an hour. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know about that. But uh, well, so. So yeah, for for today's episode of In Conversation, I'm thrilled to welcome Tom Sharpling. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me on In In Conversation. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So uh, it's a pretty momentous occasion. At the time of this conversation, you're soon to be a New York Times bestselling author (laughs) of It Never Ends, a memoir with nice memories. I, I just finished the book and it's fantastic. Oh, thanks so much. I yeah. don't know about this New York Times part of it, but I'll take it <laughs> if it happens. I mean, I'm I'm just going to project the positivity out there, and you know, hopefully, it as as far as you coming on this humble podcast, you know, this is us putting it back forward, you know, into the universe, <laughs> you know, projecting. Sure. It. Well, I appreciate that. It's like the secret. Yeah. Right. You're right. doing the secret as as a fan of the best show, you know, for for so many years. It's it's such a thrill to kind of get this inside look. One thing, I, I guess, to start it off, as as a fan of the show, I've been hearing you talk about, you know, just your struggle through the pandemic of being able to kind of sit down and focus on reading a book. And mm-hmm. this is just a little more smoke before we kind of get into uh, blowing a little more smoke until we get into the actual book. But that's something that's plagued me so badly during this pandemic. Like I'm so jealous of mm-hmm. people that have been able to, you know, read through, you know, an entire author's body of work. Or something like that, and I I totally agree with you. Like I'll try and sit down and read a thirty-three and a third, and can't get through it. Or mm-hmm. I have I have so many yeah. just like sitting. I I finished it this past week, and with more time to prep, you know, prep for this interview, I I started reading it again and got halfway through. So I think that's a true testament to how great a read it is. Or it's a testament that I wrote the simplest book <laughs> that can break anybody's pandemic slump. Yeah, possibly. No, I don't know. No, it's very well. That's very that's very flattering. I did want it to feel. I wanted it to just be fun and funny. Number one, it was like that's the goal. It's like funny, funny, funny. Even when the subject matter is not funny, 
but I also wanted it to be kind of conversational without feeling like it was just literally like a transcript from the best show or something. It was, I wanted it to feel written, but conversational. Yeah. And it's, it's great. And I, and I love, I love the way you kind of dive into it, how it, in many ways, it's like a meta, it's like a meta commentary on how, how to overcome false starts or how to kind of finish a project. You know, you, you kind of start out, start the book with an introduction, kind of explaining why you wanted to start a book and, and how you were kind of, you know, pushed by people around you to kind of, you know, accomplish this goal. Was that something that you noticed creeping into the writing as you went along? Or was that something intentional from the beginning? It was, it was, um, something that, that showed up that framing as I was putting it together. I was ex- excited to 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 kind of trip over something or to develop something that that could work as a framework, but I also was I was concerned about it not being like meta meta, but more like it wasn't meta in a way that it was overly clever or just cutesy or something. It's just like no, it's actually I'm hosting my own story in a way, if that makes sense. Like that that was when when that when that kind of framework started to reveal itself, I was like, yeah, but I don't want this to feel just like it was an exercise in being clever. I want it to feel like, no, I'm here for this, and that's why that's why this is being told this way. For longtime fans, it it really is kind of it's it's a peek into your life that was never kind of seen before, and and it, it took a lot of guts to you know to write about some of your past experiences and in such a probing way. I won't spoil anything, you know, for anyone who's who's a fan and who is has pre-ordered the book or or plans on buying the book. But I, I think a, a big theme of the book is shame as a motivator, which I I definitely identify with profoundly. You know, it, it really, it really struck a chord with me. And uh I, I was just wondering if that has always been something you are conscious of, or do you kind of notice it subconsciously kind of creeping up when you're in a situation that you feel you might be out of your depth, like that, that you're just like, no, I'm going to persevere over embarrassment or shame and, and try and create something great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, the, the, the shame portion of the thing is something I have, have obviously have struggled with and just like carrying shame on. And basically in the book, I, I appreciate you not just saying everything that's in it, but for the, the gist of it would be that it's just, I had a lot of problems, uh, when I was younger and psychological stuff and it got really bad and it created a lot of guilt and shame and all that. And that's, uh, and that's stuff I've been carrying and kind of avoiding and trying to cope with and run from all of it at the same time. And just like, so in that process, it, the process of, of me just living my life, I, I started to realize how huge that was on me, the, the amount of shame and, and fear and everything I was carrying like that and how much it impacted everything. And then I guess I would work to it would become kind of a motivator because it was a way to get past it or to try to get past it. And it, it's just been a constant struggle to always to, to get in touch with that and to start to deal with it. And then I think putting it in this book is, uh, is my, is probably my biggest way of trying to deal with it because I put it, because it's not a secret anymore. Also, that's just like, I'm, I'm saying this is who I am because I could, avoid stuff like that forever and just go through and go through life and deny it and let it let the uh, consequences come out in very weird and uh un unpredictable ways but i just want to kind of own it and try to cope with it and and i mean i'm i'm painting a picture as of of this book as as being kind of a dour thing but it's it's so funny it, it and you have so many great stories you kind of set the tone with the Patty Smith story, which, which you've told so many times over, you know, on the air on the best show, but also uh, the Marshall Crenshaw story, which I I, I identify with so much as mm, as yeah. being as being kind of I think we're kind of similar in the way we grew up in in that I feel as though so I, I to give you some context I grew up 
in upstate New York in a small farm town just outside of Vermont. I had like 80 kids in my graduating class and most of them were fish and dead fans, you know, just being around that area. So I think being, you know, a kid who was like a little unsure of himself, I got very swept up in that scene and got taken Mm -hmm. to my fair share of jam band shows, but could never fully get into it. Just kind of appreciated the camaraderie of going to these shows. Yeah, so I mean, I, look, that's that. I, I to interject, that's the camaraderie I'm envious of with that community. I just wish maybe <laughs> different bands played. Yeah, exactly. But I, I feel like for shows that I was really interested, I I would go by myself a lot of the times, and and I think that kind of lonely wanting to connect with someone on stage that is is speaking to you through headphones at home. You know, that Marshall Crenshaw story is great because I don't want to spoil the story, but you try and connect with him as he's playing on stage and it it doesn't go so well. (laughs) But it's a huge disaster. I'm trying to I'm trying to get his autograph from the stage. Yeah. It's the you can just guess how that's gonna go. (laughs) Right. I mean you you throw you all- see it all the time. You see people successfully getting autographs from the crowd. Every concert you go to, how many times during the show does the performer stop and just give autographs during the show? You see it countless times. <laughs> right, it's right. Like, wait, no, you've never seen it before. <laughs> there's a reason. Yeah, but there's there's always that outside chance though. You know, someone will pass up a note and they'll read it. You know, over the mic or something like that. Like, oh my god, like Tammy, like. Wants yeah. to wish so and so a happy birthday or something. It's still rare. It's still <laughs> rare that you get a birthday wish read from the stage. Right. But still a better chance of that than what I tried. But you you share so many of these stories, but I was I was really curious reading if if you ever was there ever a situation where when you were younger before starting the best show before even starting 18 wheeler and, and kind of becoming a writer. Did you ever have experiences with your heroes being generous to you during that time or, or kind of being treating Um, you as an equal during, during, during which period the 18 wheeler period? Oh, I guess when you were younger, like when you were younger to younger than that, I never met any heroes. I was, it was a different era. You couldn't just tweet at a hero. You just looked at them from afar and <laughs> they stayed heroic that way. They did not they did not do things or say things that made them just seem human. And that was kinda exciting. Not that I would ever want that. That would be that's a, I don't feel like I'm cut from that cloth, but I really did but I really did as a kid like being able to look up to people I never met. It's kinda more fun in a way. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like you, you don't even have a chance. When I was a kid, it's like, what would I? If Bill Murray was on Twitter when I was a kid, I would have bothered him, and he would have muted me or blocked me by this point. So, like, is that what I would want for, to happen with my hero? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not. glad I had no chance to interact with him. Right, right. I mean, have you have you met Marshall Crenshaw since? I did meet him in passing. I believe years ago, someone asked him, one of my friends who knew that story asked him if he remembered it, and I don't think he did. <laughs> I'm I'm not entirely clear on that. I have to follow up on that, actually. But I think he was not confronted, but somebody said, hey, do you remember playing a show and a kid did that? And he, I, I don't think he remembered so right <laughs> but i i met him i did not have the courage when i met him to to bring it up one of my favorite things in the book is is you you go into detail about what a week in the best show looks like and kind of the steps starting from immediately after a show wraps until the next show and mm-hmm. and i thought that was such a great it really gives you a, a it really gives the fans a perspective on how much work goes into it and and it really kind of blew me away knowing that you and John 
John Worcester, who is your comedy partner, the steps that it takes to kind of write these skits, these these long calls, uh, which usually which which run a pretty decent amount of time, you know, about a half an hour. Just what goes into writing those, and then kind of realizing that you also have to fill the air for three hours on a show. Mm-hmm. It, it it really puts it into perspective and just how much you have to juggle while knowing that things could go wrong and where you kind of came from in terms of dealing with shame and kind of running away from it. I, I feel like it's, it's putting in the work to kind of be immune to it, <laughs> to be immune to it all mm-hmm. because it's such a tightrope <laughs> is... I guess how how detailed are your notes while you're in the studio? I know there's an archivist for the show, but how detailed are the notes as you're doing it to kind of be conscious of the world of Newbridge that you've created, you know, as um, you're doing these calls? It's really whatever we have to do to to make a call happen is what we do where John writes up notes. Sometimes they're very sparse and just kind of saying like these are the bullet points for the call, more or less, saying like, just so we know the turns. We have the turns laid out in front of us. And other times the scripts are, are incredibly detailed and are literally like scripts where we we have our lines and then we build in spots that we can um, improvise and goof around off of. But specific things have to be said in specific ways so that the call works and I don't accidentally say something that will tip the premise, for example, like things like that. If the call hinges on stuff like that, it is pretty detailed. And John does, does those notes. And it really is like we're acting some, some weeks because we're really playing out page after page of, of uh, dialogue. Yeah. Well, I guess to give it some context, uh, Newbridge is is the fictional New Jersey town you kind of reference in these calls and John plays characters from the town that you 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 mm-hmm. interact with. I know I know over the years and especially on Double Threat, you've been really kind of, you know, laying into Garrison Keeler. Was Lake mm-hmm. Wobegon an inspiration for Newbridge? And and I guess like in in a weird way, like do you almost respect how detailed Wobegon is and how much he's been able to kind of build that world when you're approaching Newbridge. Well, sure. I mean, on a look, it was not an influence. I didn't know anything about that at the time. <laughs> um, I, I really just didn't know SCTV having uh, their fictional town Mellonville. That was m- much more of an influence. I mean, I just didn't know Garrison Keillor enough to have been influenced by it at that point. And in terms of respecting world building, I always respect world building with things where, where creative people decide to go deep with a thing, and and we're going to really build it out and see what we can explore in all these little corners of this big thing we built. But I think he's terrible. So I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't like it at all. But I I um I respect it in a theoretical way. He did work on a thing. He didn't he didn't half ass it. So. <laughs> I give him credit for that, but he built a bad thing. <laughs> right, right. I, I just remember growing up so vividly, you know, my parents listening to Prairie Home Companion and just being like, like, why is this funny? Like, why, why are people into this? <laughs> well, yeah, it's just with the strange thing with so much of that stuff is people build these like a, they, like that in that world. It's it's supposed to be n- normal and gentle and all that but you listen and there's such an there's such an underbelly to it that it's like there's like a sleazy underbelly to it like the carry this feels i feel i just feel i feel simmering all i sense is like simmering anger when i listen to that where it's like the characters would murder somebody yeah if if uh if the circumstances got worse like they're not it just it seems like it's not as it's not as good timey as it seems which i guess maybe is more interesting but i don't know who is aware of whatever it just seems like like people like todd salance when they would do a movie about the suburbs he's like i'm showing you what's going on in the suburbs and it's 
secretly, I'm telling you, it's going to blow your mind how weird people are in the suburbs. And you're like, yeah, no, I, I know how weird it is in the suburbs. I get that. That's one thing. But this guy is kind of like, there's nothing weird about the suburbs. Like, he's just like, like in a way he's saying it's weird, but it's weird in a very quirky way. It's like, I don't know how quirky some of these characters are. They seem like they're quirky until they get pushed a little further. Then they would go get a chainsaw out and start attacking everybody. Yeah, it's it's like this Norman Rockwell mm-hmm. like picture that he's trying to create. But I, I agree. Like, there's definitely a sense that they're like there's got to be like a like a secret society in Wobegon or something that that yeah this like upper echelon or someone's got know. or there's like bodies buried. Somebody's got thirty bodies in the backyard <laughs> buried. Like that's the kind of town John Wayne Gacy would have been in, Lake Wobegon. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's kind of where he was. He was. Yeah, those towns breed that. It feels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the story that uh, about you working in the sheet music store and and your boss at the sheet music store um, trying to help you realize that you're kind of destined for greater things. Maybe not. Maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, but that you should kind of get out there and chase your dreams and kind of imparting that wisdom onto you uh, that ideas are cheap and that actually mm-hmm. going out and doing the thing is, is, is the worthwhile thing. It's, it's not the genesis of a, the idea. It's actually taking the steps to do it is the thing that matters. And you kind of talk about that, how Garrison, you saw a Garrison Keeler memoir and your friend saying that like the only reason why you know, there's a Garrison Keillor book is because he wrote it. I kind of had that phrase in my head all weekend, and I went to go see the Sparks documentary this weekend. Have, have, mm-hmm. have you seen it yet? Yeah, I saw it a while ago. Yeah. Oh, my God. That story, there's- That sounded arrogant, by the way. I'm sorry. That sounded like, I'm like <laughs> oh, yeah, you just saw it this weekend? I saw it two months ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, 20 yeah. times. I've seen it 20 Welcome times. to the club. Yeah, welcome to the club, my friend. <laughs> We've been here for two months. Right. No, I did not mean it to sound like that. <laughs> it's okay. Or maybe I did. Yeah. Hey, I, I feel like I've read somewhere that people describe the best show as as uh, the big star of comedy. But I was watching the Sparks documentary and and I was thinking to myself, man, like I, I feel like Tom, like John and Tom are like the the male brothers of comedy, because just like telling the story of 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 how you both have just had this idea in your head and kept going with it no matter what. And just persevering because of it, like sticking to your guns and the thing that you had in your head, it's it's really a testament of 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 that. Or I, I guess just taking that advice of ideas are cheap and actually doing it is the thing that matters. Yeah, no, it's it that that I think it's a very flattering comparison. I just hope hope I don't have a ten year stretch where maybe the stuff's not so hot before <laughs> you kind of heat back up again, which I think they kind of had. Yeah. Do, um, do you think that? Yeah, I, I noticed that it kind of really glossed over like <laughs> some of those down spots. Yeah, which I guess it look they they've they've they have enough up spots for five bands, but they had a couple. There's a little small pile of spark stuff that does not do the trick. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess is a way to say it. But then they've kind of reestablished their their footing, and I think they're back where they should be. Yeah, it just it really is ideas. If you if you have your antenna up, you're going to find ideas. You just are. And it's like they can just show up and they're perfectly fine, but everything is about what you do with the idea. And like we could kick around uh stuff now and come up with it's like, "Oh, that would be a cool movie or that'd be a cool show." And if it doesn't go any further than that, it's like, "Okay, well that's that just kind of shows what an idea, like how an idea is the bare minimum in a lot of ways. And and it really comes down to just getting your head in it and saying like, well, how is this my idea? Like, how am I going to reinterpret that? How am I going to interpret this so that it, it, uh, that it works and it expresses something inside of myself? I would always hear people, people would ask me about screenwriting and stuff. They'd be like, I have an idea for a movie and... I don't want anybody to steal it and I want it. How do I get it made? It's like, and they'd be so concerned about it getting stolen. The idea that like, somebody's going to, I got it. This is a secret. This idea I'm telling you it's secret. You gotta, but I don't want anybody to steal it. And it's like, 
nobody's going to steal your idea. And it's like, then they would tell me the idea and it would be just like a movie about, I mean, I remember I've, I've probably heard three times before the, the movie Boat Trip came out starring <laughs> Horatio Sands and Cuba Gooding Jr. about two guys, two, two uh, straight guys getting stuck on a gay cruise. Classic movie. Classic. Three P. Yes. Classic <laughs> movie. Classic. It's a three people have over the years mentioned a gay cruise movie and they were so protective over the idea. It's like, well, first of all, it's not a very good idea. I can just say that we can, we can lead with that. It's a bad idea for a movie, but also it's not a special, it's like you go write it then and find something that would make it special because it's a pretty generic idea. That's the, that's what ideas are to me. Ultimately, until they get uh, executed. Yeah, I, I think a prime example of that is just the zombie mania and kind of genre of film. Like, it's it's funny to me that every single, like there's, I, I think there's like a brand new zombie show on Netflix that's pretty much the same exact thing as The Walking Dead, but the zombies are tr- like trudging through the snow. But it's like, there have been countless zombie movies that are pretty much the same premise of, Night of the Living Dead, you know, Day of the Dead, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just changing the location. Yeah. And it's it's such a, an idea that anyone could have if they've ever seen any of those movies. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, look, I I have an idea for a zombie thing. I have an idea for one. I'm, I don't know if I'm ever going to do anything with it. Somebody's going to figure it out also, and then it will be theirs. And it's like, because they did something with it. I can just say I have an idea for a thing, and it it took me 15 minutes to come up with one day when I was just driving around. The ideas ideas are fast and cheap. <laughs> yeah, everything else is hard and endless. After finishing the book, I, I I've been listening to the the latest episode of the Best Show, you know, just as a podcast and trying to catch up. I've I've just noticed that reading about your past and knowing where you came from and what you've had to overcome that I've, I've found such an appreciation for the way that you are empathetic with callers and, and the way that you treat people over the air. You've been doing it for so long. And I, I feel like a real through line through the show is, I mean, you do, you do kind of get on people if, if they're wasting, wasting air and you, you kick them off if they need to be kicked off, but you're very patient with people. Is is that something that you kind of have to struggle with, or is is that something that comes no, naturally? That's that comes as naturally as as can be. I mean, that's who that's who I am. I never want to just be like relentlessly mean to people. I want to have conversations and goof around and maybe tease people, and then if it gets worse, then I'll go wherever that goes. But I don't start out like gunning to make people feel bad, right? I want to try to be nice uh, enough, like, or at least be accommodating to where we can, we can do something together, have a conversation together. And I can, I'm going to do what I do, which is to be, try to be funny and, and keep it entertaining. And, and as a part of a show too, it, they can never be a hundred percent real conversations in a way because they're in front of people. And that's just how that goes. It's like anytime you turn on a camera or a microphone, reality changes just however much it changes. I don't know. It's, it's, I, I never wanted to just be picking on people with no context for it. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I don't know. I, I can't imagine another radio show, you know, being willing, I, I guess, welcome someone like avalanche Bob into the fray and kind of have Mm -hmm. his story be, you know, I I felt like that story, his entire story was told over the show because he would call in every week and you would kind of get updates on where he was and what he was doing. And I, if it was a different show and had like a less empathetic host that, that a caller like avalanche Bob would just be screened out. (laughs) I, I'm, I I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's what's so great about the show is it really the world is so welcoming that you've created. Oh, that's very nice. 
of you to say, yeah, Avalanche Bob, uh, who was a caller to the show, who basically was a old guy. I mean, like like eighty year old guy who would be plugging his music and doing his thing, and and it drove people crazy. There were people who were just like least favorite caller ever. I shut it off when he's on. I fast forward when he's on. And other people would be like, I love it. I think he's a, a wacky, wacky guy. And I like that you're giving him a platform. It was hard to, it really was striking a bounce where there were weeks where I was just like, I don't know if I'm up for this because, because it changes the flow of the whole show. Cause he's just doing, he wasn't listening to the show. He would just call up, promote his thing, be a, a, a maniac and then split and he had no regard for the f- for the flow of the show I was doing, and it would change it sometimes, and it would make it suddenly it's like, well, now it's going to take 15 minutes to recover from that to change the flow and the pace of the show and the energy. Yeah, but it was fine. I just like I f- I I wanted him to not be uh, hurt. I, I felt I felt kind of just like I wanted to be nice to the guy. Yeah. Did Did you ever? I know he played the cake shop a couple of times. Did Did you ever go to see any of his shows? No, I never did meet him. Yeah. Yeah. I believe Pat on the show went to one of the shows. I think so. Right. No, I can't, can't 100% remember. Over the years, I've, I've loved your, I, I love whenever you have an in-studio guest. I, I think recently you had, well, I guess it wasn't in-studio, but you had, you know, like Jay Maskus and Kim Gordon on the show. And, and I feel like mm-hmm. the way you, are, are the guests ever taken aback by having to be brought into the dynamic of, of the best show crew and, and maybe taking calls? Like, are they, are they ever game? Like, are they mostly game for that? Oh, I don't know. Did I, I don't think I took calls for either of those guests. I think I just did a conversation with them. Uh, you know, Kurt Vile was on with, with Jay Mascus and we kind of interviewed him together. I'm trying to just get a thing. If a guest comes on, I just want to get a thing going with them. Just try to build some kind of connection. Those are two of the more, I don't want to say challenging, but they're, they're just like, they're musicians who are not the most um, conversational in a way because they just, that's not what they are and that's fine. So I just want to try to pull stuff out of them as much as I can and have a good conversation with them. <laughs> so I think callers sometimes can, because callers are going to do what they want to do and that's what they're calling in to do. I'm not judging that, but they can take a thing off target if it's going to be a a challenging interview it's hard enough for me to get a connection going so um and to make the guests feel comfortable and into it yeah i didn't take calls on those i i will with other guests oh wait was it the paul rudd uh interview i I think you you took calls on that and the james murphy oh yeah yeah um yeah well they were both in studio and it then it really helps because then they can see that i'm there and i'm running the thing and they're not going to be hung out to dry or whatever that somebody's got their back. Yeah. The Tommy Stinson episode was one of my favorite, Ugh. just favorite moments ever, you know, just because the, the mm-hmm. way you were able to turn that around. And as, as a journalist who interviews musicians a lot, I've had so many experiences like that where I've just been mm-hmm. strung along and have known that it's been completely bullshit. <laughs> or, you know, just known yeah. that, you know, I, I, I talked to this, I, I used to be the features editor of Metro New York, which was the subway paper in the city. Okay. I had to interview this one indie rock band that was big at the time, no longer is. It was just one of those things where I was supposed to interview them early in the morning and then ended up interviewing them at like six at night. It was just one of those things that got pushed mm-hmm. back, back, back. And when I finally talked to them, the lead singer was like, yeah, I was at the gym. Then I got some lunch and took a shower <laughs> and like all this told me the truth. And it was the exact opposite of what the publicist was telling me all day. They were just trying to connect mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So to hear you have like the same kind of inner monologue of like, who the fuck does this guy think he is <laughs> like um, over the air yeah. was so refreshing. I mean, did you ever... I, I guess was there ever closure to that, like real closure to that? Like, did you ever kind of no, no, no? That's fine. Yeah, I don't want it. Yeah, what, like I got handed some lemons, and I made some lemonade out of it. That was the best part of that. Was that ultimately 
the show was better because he didn't show up. <laughs> yeah. And because he would have shown up, played a couple songs, acted like a cool dude, and not been in the spirit of the show, has no idea who I am, then would have split. That would have been it. I think what happened was so much better. Me, me realizing that this big interview was not going to happen was by far the best version of it because it just created a moment where I, I, in real time, had to process this and move forward. And then John and I created a call in the moment that was, I don't know, I feel like we hit on something really special. It was great. Yeah. And looking back, I'll take that every time. I I actually have gone back and listened to that episode a few times just because it I it was it was so great. But in in those situations where like are are you able to listen to the replacements anymore or has it kind of tainted your view so badly that it's scarring? Oh, to be honest, I've kind of lost interest in the replacements a while ago. I would have been going through the motions with that a little bit. I just they I I loved them a lot at one point and now they just I I listen to it and it doesn't speak to me anymore. So yeah, it happens. I I kind of agree. I I feel like I listen to more solo Westerberg these days than I I just can't lock into the replacements that much anymore. Even even if I just want like silly punk like Sorry Ma or something, I I reach for something else. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, <laughs> but maybe it's their world. Yeah, it's just there's. Well, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's just the worldview. I think it's pretty adolescent. I guess I don't know. Yeah, it just it, look. It, it served a purpose, and it kind of doesn't uh, do it for me anymore. I was curious reading the book. I, I know you moved to LA a few years ago. What was the? I, I, and I know that was mainly brought on for because of some personal issues. But what mm-hmm. was the decision to move to California instead of you know maybe moving closer to John or? you know, moving somewhere else in the country, what, what made you choose LA? Well, this is where work is and the kind of work I'm doing is here. And I have a lot of friends here and it's somewhere I've always gone to and I'm kind of, so I'm here starting a new life. It's, uh, it just makes the most sense by far. And are, are you, in, are you enjoying it or, you know, do you, do you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, definitely. No, it's, it's definitely where I want to be. Yeah. And have yeah. you have you been back it's, back to Jersey since? Pandemic kind of took that off the table. I was going to go back, and then that that really uh, has really changed things. I'll, I will go back, but I'm I'm living here now. This is where this is where my life is. Yeah, one of the things that really got me through the pandemic was has been Double Threat. You know the the podcast that you host with Julie Klausner. Mm-hmm. What was the decision to kind of start a separate podcast from the Best Show, and and how did that kind of get moving well you know we just wanted to do julie and i have wanted to do something together and we i think we have really special chemistry when we do stuff together and it just was a good good thing to jump into we'd been circling it for a while and we started right before the pandemic then the pandemic happened and it kind of became a thing we never did we never did together. We did it. I think we did it together once when she was in LA, and then then she was in New York. I was here, and we through technology we patched it together. And it was kind of it was a lot of fun. It really helped with uh, getting through the pandemic, having a new thing to focus on. You could kind of as a, as a fan of the best show, you could kind of see it coming in in ways. I, I feel like her appearances on the best show, especially that the episode where you listen along to LA Woman. Of the doors, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the door song okay. is one of my favorite clips ever. And, and I feel like it's something I show to so many people, or if I'm feeling down, I listen to, cause it just makes me laugh every time. And, and it got me thinking, especially with bands like the doors, Zappa and the dead, who I feel like are, are three people that you, I don't know. I don't know actually about the doors, but I feel like you've made conscious efforts to get into those groups. And and kind of have just oh, resigned yeah. yourself to being like, it's not for me. I guess when you approach, yeah, no, when you approach music and films yeah. and stuff like that, are they usually guilty until proven innocent or innocent until proven guilty? I don't know. I just I, I try. I don't I don't like. I've made I've had plenty of experiences with making fun of something I didn't know just to 
just to be crappy and make fun of something. Then I've also had experiences where I was, um, I want to be fair to the stuff because I wouldn't love it if somebody was making fun of me with no context, but I've done it to people and people have done it to me and it's not, it's not good. It's just not the, it's so when, when I have these friends who love the grateful dead and then they, the, the, I see them get converted one by one and they're like, no, it really, I'm telling you, it makes sense. And I'm like, okay, well help me then show me what makes sense. And I'll, try to join you with it and then they send me things and it's just it's like it man this doesn't do it for me so it really is just one of those things where i do i have tried i think i'm might be done trying we'll see maybe i'll maybe i'll give it one more shot if somebody can tell me the the absolute perfect dead uh, show to check out it's it's so funny like i feel like there are so many dead influence artists that i listen to but i just can't do the dead you know like i i love Mm-hmm. I love like Steve Gunn. I love Riley Walker, mm-hmm. you know, people like that who clearly mind that influence, but I, yeah, I just can't do it. Yeah. So, I mean, if I, I have any appreciation for them, it's what they do for people I like. So, cause it clearly is doing something for them. So they're giving me their version of what the Grateful Dead are. So, and I like that. So then Go Grateful Dead. <laughs> you make because Steve Gunn likes you, and I like Steve Gunn. Are, are there any artists or or you know bands that you listen to when you were younger, but have kind of you know soured over the over time for you? Like where you were very into them growing up, and and have just been like, I can't go back to or revisit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I really don't. Uh, I mean, like like I said, the replacements. I kind of did my time with and i don't know what else i can get out of that um rem i really haven't listened to much in the last 20 years yeah a lot of stuff like that a lot of the stuff from the 80s i was so into it and went so deep with it that i just i got i got what i was going to get out of it and other things i come back to over and over i mean beach boys i'm pretty fried on that was one of my favorite bands ever like i was buying these beach boys like when I was in high school, I was into it and it was definitely not how it is now. It is definitely not like a, it, they were not the beach boys and the legend of Brian Wilson was not, not even anything like it is now. Now it's the people appreciate him for the genius that he is, but then they weren't. And I would find these beach boys records. I would, I, would, I remember looking, it took me months to find a copy of sunflower. I was so deep into it, buying bootlegs like crazy and then I just felt it kind of like, okay, I got, I got it. I don't need to keep listening to this. There's other stuff. Yeah. I, I used to love like a lot of hardcore and a lot of punk. I, I still do, but I feel like I would rather in most cases watch like a documentary or read a book about it than actually sit down and listen mm-hmm. to like eighties hardcore <laughs> or something like that. Sure. Yeah. No, but it, but it me it means everything. And then. It it helped you through that period. There you go, and that's that's it. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess that's all it needs to be, really. So another podcast that has really gotten me through the pandemic. I, I went through the Sparks discography, you know, because I knew this documentary was coming up. But I also mm-hmm. tried my best to listen along with So Far. <laughs> okay, and yeah. and how'd that work for you? Oh. Horribly, <laughs> horribly, but mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it just kind of, I mean, my appreciation for Neil grew, of course, but I guess, was that something because I, if correct me if I'm wrong, but the best show took a break at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. For a few months. Right. It was, uh, we kind of took a, took a break. Yeah. I mean, let, let things kind of, uh, just didn't feel like the right, uh, the right time to be doing the show for a few reasons. So put it on ice and then brought it back uh, right before the election. Yeah. But I, I guess was, was so far, maybe I have my timeline wrong, but was that a way of kind of keeping in touch with the crew and, and kind of doing something fun to still kind of keep it going or. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was definitely a good, a good way for everybody to do different things uh, and to, to talk about different things and give kind of a focal point to just a subject matter that we could all kind of be ourselves with. Yeah. And it's also just a nice 
thing to talk where everybody is is um, in equal equal space on it. I'm not the host of Double Threat. It's the four of us are are all sharing the ball equally. Yeah, I guess I should explain. So it's the crew of the best show. Oh, not Double Threat so far. Yeah, kind of going through the discography of CSNY's catalog, <laughs> even including solo releases, all of the Neil Young releases, just everything. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. it seems like it at times it may have broken your mind <laughs> or, or at least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Are there you start getting into some of those, um, cross David Crosby records from the late nineties. That'll, <laughs> that'll, that'll break your brain. Ha- have any of like, um, I guess has like Crosby's camp reached out to you or any, or anything like that to kind of like, it, or do they have any knowledge of it? Oh, I, I'm sure they have no idea this thing exists. <laughs> They are, uh, they don't want any part of any of this. Right. If they found out, they would probably keep it from Crosby because it would hurt his feelings. Yeah. But look, he's the one that made those records. I didn't. Yeah. Stan, it's on his shoulders, I guess. Yes. With Double Threat and So Far and The Best Show, what does your, you kind of explain how your week looks just in terms of The Best Show, adding those two podcasts, like how, I guess, how are you able to kind of keep those things separate and kind of make time for each? You, in terms of the time thing, I just make time. It's, it's sometimes it's a challenge, uh, but that's what we do. I don't know. It's, 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 there's, there's time in the week if we're focused and, and pay attention and, and kind of say like, all right, this is best show time. This is double threat time. We're prepped and we do it. It, it it makes sense. It gets a little tight sometimes, but we we get there. Yeah. Are are you still working on what we do in the shadows? No, I'm I'm uh, I worked on season one for that, and then now I'm uh, I was working on. Then I worked on a show called Kevin Can F Himself. I wrote on that for season one, and that's just starting to air now. And I'm working on another show now that uh, I will be able to talk about soon nice but yeah i've kind of moved from job to job a little bit yeah in the book you kind of say you know one of your dreams is to have a a show that has the tom sharpling created by you know you you want to have your own show that's your Mm -hmm. own concept um is is that something that you're working on now is was was the book was writing that sentence motivation to to really kind of get that out there and kind of make that happen like, are you looking to do that? Yeah, sure. And, 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 and not, not like it was something I really, that would like make or break me if it did, if I didn't put that in, or I'm not like pulling, that's not fueling me, but it just, it's, it's, it's where my head's at. Just one time I would like to get a show. It would be, would be nice to have a, something where it was mine. And, but honestly, if it doesn't, if it never happens, then it doesn't happen. I mean, I can't control that stuff. Yeah. It would, it, but um, I find enough opportunities to get things going that I feel proud of and I feel like I control and create. So it's not like I have some some uh, void that I've never filled. It's like I, I do two podcasts where I get to say and do anything I want on them. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote a book and I get, there's plenty of opportunities. Yeah, it, it would be nice. Is is there a is there a future to Grown Ups Three? Do you do you plan on doing anything else? No, I can I can I can <laughs> I can conclusively say there's nothing with Grown Ups Three. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's not going to happen. It was a fun it was a fun thing I wrote. I wrote the third Grown Ups movie that nobody asked me to write, and it's a it's its own weird thing, and basically turns into a horror movie. That was fun to do, and that just uh, to me that just reaffirms the value of doing things that nobody asks you to do because people really liked it. I would recommend to every kind of creative person, it's like just go take the time to do one thing that's all yours because then you might might get you excited about things again if you're feeling a little little un, uninspired. Just do a thing and have no expectations of it. Yeah, I was noticing that in my Google Drive, like the only you know, large format things that I have are, are your book because I got an advance and then also Grown Ups 3. <laughs> so they're taking up so much space. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like when I was reading Grown Ups 3, all I could imagine 
you know, first imagining it as a movie, but also reading it, I was like, it'd be so great if there was like a Max Fisher from Rushmore, like high school production of this with like an elaborate budget, like crazy staging of, of Grown Ups 3. I, I could mm-hmm. just see that playing out in high schools all across the country. <laughs> Was that? Oh, well, that would be that would be a magic moment. I mean, was I, I know there were readings for charity, but was there ever like the idea of doing kind of like a directed stage adaption of it? Or oh, um, I, I, I really for for me, I really I wrote it, and it was the goal was I wrote it, and then people approached about doing a couple things with it, and I was like, you guys can do do it. I just am not. It's not my thing. They could, people can do things with it for charity and all that, but it just was like, I re, I didn't have much interest in turning it into like my thing. Like I didn't want it to be like, I'm actively pursuing doing something with Grown Ups three. It was like people could do things, but just, I didn't want to make money off of it. I wanted it to just, the script to me was the beginning, middle and end of it. Anything past that other people could do uh, what they wanted with it. Right. Right. So I guess with the book coming out um, right now, you know, we're about a week out from the book coming out, um, maybe two weeks. Do you have any plans to kind of do in-person events or are you kind of taking this on the road or, or how's it working? How's, how's the rollout going to work? We're going to, we're going to do, we're going to do book, bookstore stuff, but unfortunately I'm catching a window where things are still, I'm just outside of the, the window to do uh, things in person. Bookstores are being a little conservative with that stuff. And so I'm just going to miss it. So if there's a, if there's a paperback or something like that, then I will do a full, full tour of all of that. uh, Like I had wanted to do, because I really did want to just get out there and really plug this thing, but I'm doing it every which way I can. I'm going to be doing a lot of um, virtual things. I'm going to announce there. It's uh, probably today. Even I can, it's like, different bookstores around the country doing these virtual things. It'll be me in conversation with a bunch of different people. And um, it's going to be really great, but that's the closest I can come to hitting the pavement with it Yeah, right now. I, w- I was at one of those murmur shows that you did um, for the rock rotten rule anniversary. And I just thought it was so great. And, and as, as I finished the book, I was, I was really like, God, I wish things were in a position where, you know, you could do like a best show tour you know, coinciding with the book. Are there any plans to, to ever do, you know, if things are at a, in a good place to do a, another best show tour? Oh yeah. Me and John, me and John will do something again. We just have to wait for the world to get back to normal and then wait for our schedules to align, but we'll, we'll definitely do something. Nice. Tom, thank, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I've, I've been an FOT for a long time and, and this means the world and congratulations on the book. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. What your shirt is? What again? Why oh. is it drawing me? Is it Pink Floyd? It's a it's a Robin Hitchcock shirt. It's Robin Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. It's Robin Hitchcock. Yeah. Of course. It's, it's like, a man with a light bulb head. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, thanks, thanks, yeah. Tom, and and uh, yeah, of course. Well, Thank you. Right, take care.